living in the time I'm living in, there is no better use of my time than solving this problem. Because until this problem is solved, no other problem is going to get solved. Whether we're talking about gender equality or international conflict or climate change or water scarcity or, you know, none of that gets solved unless people know what the facts are. And so I have convinced myself that the problem I'm working on is the best use of my time and of my life. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question Where do you go to get the news? Do you religiously watch a daily news bulletin on the television? Do you read through the newspaper or a roundup email? Perhaps you dip in and out of various news feeds throughout the day. Maybe it's social media or randomly checking the headlines on your news app or website of choice. Or maybe you've just pretty much opted out. Maybe you've decided that it's easier just not to know that most of it is just too divisive, fearful, and inflamed, or potentially incorrect, to be useful. And that, to be honest, if something urgent was to happen, you're bound to find out eventually. But in the meantime, it's just easier to protect your time, energy, and mental health. Which leads me to the next question of today. Why should we pay attention to the news? Or more accurately, what news is worth paying attention to? Recently, I read something the BBC wrote in an article about a study on the impact of news coverage from the University of California. And it said this, News coverage is far more than a benign source of facts. From our attitudes to immigrants to the content of our dreams, it leads us to miscalculate risks, shapes our views of foreign countries and influences the health of entire economies. Now, if there were a scale of total influence on our lives, our economies, our businesses, the health and safety of our communities, I'd say that our approach to the quality of information we consume, usually in the form of news, would pretty much top the charts. And yet, about a year ago, I joined the ranks of the opt-outs. It was within the first few weeks of the initial lockdowns and my bandwidth just felt exhausted. Uh, I honestly no longer knew what to do with the barrage of information that was coming my way on a minute-by-minute basis on a 24-hour, seven-days-a-week cycle. And I was well aware then, as I am now, that avoiding the news altogether isn't the answer. However, for the first time in my life, a life I'd like to think based around information, inquiry, and the exploration of ideas, the bad of staying informed on my energy and resourcefulness, positivity and mental health, seemed to purely outweigh the good. 
Now, since then, I've tried multiple approaches in how I consume the news. I've tried reading from my usual sources and then researching the opposite point of view, deliberately seeking out sources of good news to counteract the never-ending focus on fear and outrage, trying to pinpoint whose voices might be missing from the stories and then hunting those voices out, all of which is quite frankly time-consuming and very hard to recommend as a solution. But it was this search that led me to my next guest. I first came across Gotham Mishra when someone sent me an article entitled Creating the Spotify for News, which made me kind of curious, curious enough to dive deeper and eventually get him as a guest for the podcast. Gotham is the founder and CEO of Inkle, a premium news service that I'm actually now using as an app on my phone that unlocks articles from news titles from across the world. However, what was really interesting to me about both Gotham and Inkle is the algorithm, which instead of ranking articles on what's trending, on what's popular, which is not always a good indicator of what's important, it instead ranks it on what the world's top editors have defined to be important or urgent. Now, add to that the deliberate decision to include good news in the feed, and as I discovered as part of this conversation, including a list of alternative perspectives on the issue underneath each article, if you want to dive deeper. I was pretty much in love from the first moment and wanted to understand more about the mind behind someone who would create a channel like that. Now, channels like this may or may not be the final answer. However, it is an insight into what the world of news could look like if people like Gotham were brave enough to consider how we could possibly reimagine it. Today, we talk about what's currently broken within the news landscape, including how any industry can be expected to lose 99% of its revenue and stay intact. The value of the news and how it shapes the very fabric of who we are and who we eventually become as a society the future of how we find and consume the news and what we can do right now to keep ourselves resourceful, balanced and informed. The journey to conviction, that's my new favourite phrase, the journey to conviction, why it's so important and difficult to consciously pave that road with as many perspectives as possible, including whether social media is helpful or a dangerous distraction in that area. And finally, how as a father, he feels positive about our ability to turn this ship around. Now, for anyone who wants to explore Inkle, um, I have no vested interest. I'm just really enjoying using it at the moment. Um, Gotham has been kind enough to offer a 14-day trial. There should be a link in the show notes. Alternatively, you can go to www.inkl.com slash julie-masters. Also, don't forget to hop on and download my new ebook, The Influencer Code, which is available on my website, juliemasters.com. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be the most valuable when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence or authority. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox before you can blink. On that note, and with a sincere invitation to absorb, question, and explore further the news that you're about to hear, I'll leave you with one of the most insightful humans I've had the pleasure of speaking with for a while, Gotham Mishra. Welcome to the podcast, Gotham Mishra. How are you? Very well. Thanks for having me, Julie. You're welcome. 
You're welcome. I'm going to kick off the way that I would always kick off this, this section of the podcast, and that is to ask you if there's any ideas at the moment that are ha- having a huge influence on you. And the reason that I ask is my own personal theory that people who usually go about the world doing interesting things or having great ideas tend to come across interesting or impactful ideas before the majority of us. Sure. Uh, well, I don't know if I'm ahead of other people in thinking about this because I suspect it's something a lot of people run into, but I'm spending a lot of time thinking about disposable time. And the reason I'm thinking about that is that there's just been this explosion of choice in how you can spend your spare time. Um, so, you know, just to take a simple example, you could be reading a book or listening to a podcast or watching something on Netflix or on social media or, you know, there's there's so many different choices now, including with some of the new platforms like Clubhouse. So what I've found is that for myself, it's quite important to now start to plan that time. Whereas in the past, that wasn't necessarily something that you had to do. But now I'm thinking more consciously about my information diet. In some ways, it actually... I, th- I think it's a bit similar to what happened with our with our food diet. You know, as your food choices started to explode, um, you had to think more about which choices you made and what you decided to eat. And we're sort of seeing the same thing happening with information now. And there's a certain amount of information you have to consume just because of work. So that's not really changed. But it's everything outside of that, which is this disposable time. And I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, well, would I rather listen to you know, an ebook, or would I rather listen to a podcast and having to make a conscious choice about that. And that's not something that even five years ago, I really felt the pressure to do, but there's just so many different options now that I feel like unless I'm actually consciously thinking about it, I'm not sure I'm necessarily making all the right choices. I think the past 12 months has really impacted. I mean, I know that it has for me, you know, it being in in lockdown for a portion of it, you know, suddenly everything that we consumed was was digital. And then you started to make choices about, okay, well, I'm going to stare at screen throughout the day. If all of my conversation is going to be digital, how am I going to handle my spare time? But the other thing that really shifted for me as part of that time was looking at my mornings because suddenly my travel schedule was gone. And, I, you know, I'd never had to really make a daily routine before because I, I could have been anywhere And I started to take that concept of disposable time. I started looking at my mornings and going, okay, well, what if I made my mornings a reflection of my priorities in life? What if I did that? So what if I got up, you know, tried to meditate or just sit very still and quietly for for 15 minutes? And then what if I went to the gym? And then, then what if I came back, got my kids in the car? Then what if I attacked, you know, an hour of the most important work that I had to do that day? And then I checked my emails. Then the rest of the world can come in. That would be a reflection of, you know, my priorities, hopefully, in life, the way that I would like them to be, you know, spirit, body, family, priorities, creativity. And so, yeah, just reflecting on what you said there about conscious choices and how you use your disposable time and having them actually reflect what you want to create, the type of world and mind and community that you want to create. Absolutely. And I think your point there about the pandemic is an excellent one because it has created a lot more flexibility and opportunity for people to think about and craft solutions that work for them. Yeah, Just yesterday, I was talking to a friend who's just come back to Australia from the US and he's still working for the American company. So he's starting work at six in the morning 
And he's finishing his work sometime in the middle of the afternoon. And so very much in the same way that you described setting up a routine for yourself, he's actively doing that at the moment as well and sort of thinking about, well, what do I do from 2 p.m. onwards and what's the best way for me to use my time? Mm. Which on a different time zone would be a whole different a whole different question. Yeah. Well, let's. I want to. I want to jump into what we're here to talk about today, and you know, we're, we're going to be talking about the state of news. We're going to be talking about what we, how it's impacting us, how it's influencing us, the work that you're doing in that field. We're going to get into that, but I wanted to talk first of all about why this conversation is necessary. It seemed like a good place to start. What do you see with as being wrong with the state of news, or to a large part, the news industry at the moment? Because I think that we can. All agree there's a lot of very big question marks in this space at the moment. Let me start by first just talking about what readers need, because I think that's where the change starts. And if you contrast you know, your own individual news needs today versus, let's say, 10 years ago, there have been a few very substantial changes to the kind of news that you need. The first is the breadth of topics that you need to be across. You know, if you thought about news consumption 10 or 20 years ago, on a daily basis, there might only be maybe five or 10 stories that were relevant to know about. And most of those would be in your local proximate geography, in your city or your state or your country. Today, you probably need to know about 10 times as many stories. And a lot of those are happening in other parts of the world. And it's all happening a lot faster. So what you're dealing with as an individual news consumer is a huge explosion in the amount of information that you need to be across. And, you know, these are stories that are not just driven by personal curiosity. There are business connections, there are political connections, there are social connections that mean that you actually do need to know what's happening. You know, there might be a hedge fund blowing up in the UK, or there might be a company going public in the US. And it has a direct bearing on the work and the life that you're living down here in Australia. And so I think that's one of the first big changes to acknowledge, is that as individual consumers, there is a lot more information that we are all expected to and all trying to be across in the day. The second big change has been our ability to access that information. When we only needed to know about five or 10 stories in a day, we could do most of that by just going to a single source. You could go to you know, whichever news provider you preferred and get most of that coverage. But when we're now looking at covering 100 stories a day and really understanding what's happening in different parts of the world, and it's all happening much faster, we do need to get news from multiple sources. And so in America, for example, 50% of people are reading news from four or more news sources in a week. And so there's been a, an increase, not just in the number of sources or number of stories, but also the places that we go to find these new stories. And that's where I think the third biggest change has taken place, which is some of these new places that we go to in search for news are not actually designed for distribution of news. They're trying to do something else and news is there in these environments, but it's almost incidental. If you think about news being on Facebook and Facebook by themselves, you know, they say they're not a news publisher and they're quite right about that because they're more like a dating platform. They're there to build relationships. And so the sort of information you show people if you're trying to build relationships is not necessarily the same as you would show them if you were a news publisher. And so I'd say those are the three big changes that we've seen happen. The amount of information we need to have, the number of places we need to go and get it, and 
the, I guess, the incentives or the motivations of some of those channels and points of distribution. We'll get onto incentives in in a little while, but let's just, let's stick with social media for a second because that's that's really interesting. Some of the stats that that we found was fifty three percent of Americans. It was an American study preferred getting their news from social media, in, and that was in twenty twenty. Where does social media sit in the equation as far as you're concerned? Is it on the positive side, as in more people have access to more information, so news reaches people faster? Or is it on the negative side, as in obviously it raises questions about accuracy, it raises questions about agenda, bias, interpretation, facts in general now seem to be more than a little bit up for grabs. Where does it sit for you, more positive or more negative? I, on balance, I would say it's more negative, but I'd say that's for two specific reasons. I mean, there is the, the potential for social media to be a positive point of distribution for news was always there. The idea that you would get news that your friends and family, people you trusted, had vetted for you was a very attractive idea. But the reason that doesn't work in practice is, well, there's two reasons why it doesn't work. The first is the way social media platforms are constructed. They're open networks. By design, anybody can say anything. And that's a very dangerous thing to do in the context of news and facts, where you know you would not go to a news organization that was just publishing stories without checking the provenance or the facts or having journalists doing the research on those stories. But that essentially is what people are doing when they're trusting social media, because you don't really know who is writing what on social media. And so I think there's an open versus closed systems design question, which is... You know, I think there's a fundamentally different answer if you're trying to build a social network versus trying to build a news source. I'd say that's the first key issue. And then the second issue is around algorithm design. Now, if you and I are friends on Facebook, the thing that Facebook wants is for us to come back to Facebook more often. And the way to do that is to find something that we share in common so that we both engage with it and that makes our friendship stronger. And so we'll come back and talk to each other more often. But if you're a news publisher, what you want to do is probably almost the opposite. You want to figure out what are the things that are really important for me to know that I might not actually have in common with you and vice versa for you. And make sure showing us those stories that maybe are individually relevant to us, but not necessarily going to reinforce our friendship. And so when you put these two things together, the design of the system and the algorithm, it's very hard to actually get back to that original idea of getting more trusted news through friends and family. It's really interesting you say that. So what, I, what I'm taking from that is that the, the essential coding of each system is, is different. So traditional news, news sources, the, the coding was, let me bring you something that I feel that like you should know. It might not be something that we have in common. It might not even agree with you. But let me bring you something that I believe is important for you to know. If you look at the essential coding of social media and algorithms in general, it's, it's not that. It's let me show you something that I believe you will resonate with, i.e., probably agree with so that we can build a relationship in common so that either a I can tie you more closely together with a person or b to be more pessimistic about it I can sell you something so the coding is completely different but all of that aside and we don't want to put that too far aside but why does it matter why does it matter that our predominant sources of news are now being coded differently it goes back to the thing we discussed just before, 
around the speed of the news cycle. If you only needed to know about five stories, the amount of time you could devote to understanding the stories and researching them and really sort of querying those stories and what you were being told would be a lot higher than what it is now. When you're constantly bombarded with news stories, and a lot of them are outside your sphere of knowledge, so it's new information without prior context, you're a lot more susceptible to misinformation. And there is a lot more subjectivity in the news now, both by um, omission, you know, in organizations choosing which stories to show or not show, but also in how they cover the story, in them trying to contextualize and explain it for people who don't have that prior context. And so more than ever in the past, you know, it's really important now to think about that context and the subjectivity in the news that you're getting. Hasn't that always been the case? I mean, every news organization has always had an owner or a board of directors or stakeholders or those who um, are incentivized to make sure that a certain opinion gets out there in the world. I mean, are we just seeing the natural consequence of that as a system for news? It's a good question. So I, because I agree with you, I'd say, you know, newspapers have always had an editorial stance, right? And you can be a centrist, or you can be left-leaning or right-leaning, and that's always been there. I think the thing that's different now is quite often you're getting news from a source that you don't know. And so you're getting news without that declared bias, right? Whereas in the past, when you went to a certain news source, you knew what you were going to get, what sort of editorial stance you were signing up for. And so you knew how to process that information. But when you get that same information without that understanding of, you know, what the source is really trying to achieve, it's, it's harder to, I guess, translate what you're reading into what, you know, you think it actually means. And then the second thing is it does go back to that amount of time that you have available to absorb and think about that story. As we're all getting busier, we each have less and less time to do that. Yeah, that that ties into something else that I was thinking about when I was researching this topic, which is we are all we're all being required now to almost parent our own our own media consumption. And that requirement, I, I mean, I don't remember be, that being there for my parents. As you said, you know, they would buy a newspaper. They knew that that newspaper was either left or right. So depending on their leaning, they would go one way or the other. But no one needed to parent themselves, you know, and it feels like this situation has started and, and no announcement has been made. No one has made the announcement that, oh, by the way, the business models have changed. Everything has changed now. Our primary driver now is to try and get your eyeballs because, and we'll get onto this, our business model means that we are now running out of of profitability. And so therefore, what we bring you is less about the news and more about ways in which we can get you engaged and, and get you in, which, and this is my bias, tends to be by going very hard after fear, drama and outrage, because traditionally, that's the fastest way to get human eyeballs. So I, I mean, it feels like, yeah, we've suddenly been given this responsibility to 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 parent ourselves. I can't think of a better way of putting it. But no, but nobody mentions that it's required and no one gives us any kind of guidance as to how to do that when it's so prevalent, when news is everywhere now. Absolutely. And the, the group of people that I feel particularly concerned about are the students, because, you know, you and I as adults, when we come to a topic, we do bring a certain amount of knowledge of the world to, you know, with us. 
Um, and so we have at least that context or lens with which to make sense of what we're reading. But if you think about a high school student who's reading about cryptocurrency for the first time or was reading about exploration of Mars, you know, they don't really have a lot of prior context to a lot of these news topics. And so I think for them in particular, you know, there's a real concern. And as much as we've heard about and worried about fake news so far, I think we're really just getting started. You think about where fake video is going, you think about the susceptibility of some of these new audiences. And I think this problem is going to become a much bigger problem in the future. For anyone that hasn't heard about fake video, or I think that another term is deep fakes, can you just quickly give some, some context around that about what it is? Sure. It's very simply video manipulation. So in the same way that in the past you could you know, splice together and manipulate uh, static images, photographs, and you could stick one person's head in another person's body, you know, you can now do that in video. And, you know, as they say, seeing is believing. So unfortunately, some of this stuff is very, very convincing. And, you know, you can, for instance, have a speech uh, or a video of Barack Obama giving a speech where the words of that speech actually changed. And you can't really easily tell. It looks just exactly like Barack Obama giving a speech, but the words are completely different. And that's all done through AI. And, um, you know, the technology is not inaccessible. It's pretty easy to do now. I keep coming back to the same question on this topic. You know, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that, how does that play out for, for families? How does that play out for society? And if there's a crossroads here, how will we know which when and, and how to take it since we didn't notice that we were finding ourselves in this situation in the first place what fast forwards five years from now what how do you see us avoiding a situation where you know what we're consuming is you know impossible to verify um deep in bias you know potentially manipulated how, like let's not go into that world of pain how do you see us taking this transformation of a whole industry and turning it into something that is stronger, more resilient, and more beneficial for society at large? Yeah. Look, I think ultimately provenance matters. And that's something we're going to see more and more. And it's something that I think we've not paid enough attention to in the digital space over the last two decades, right? Because over the last two decades, the, I guess the primary focus has been on just delivering access. You know, that lower cost with easier sort of reach and, you know, everything's at our fingertips. And we've not had to think too much about the provenance of that information. But I think going forward, we will. You know, the reason why my company exists is simply because there is a need for a service that has vetted information and which is a closed platform where we are very selective about the new sources we work with. And we have journalists vetting stories and deciding what's really important for people to know. And, you know, we are one, but there will be many organizations that come up that really devote themselves to doing this because, as you say, there's there's a big need out there for people to be able to trust the information they're getting. Let's. I, I want to get into what you just said there around deciding, you know, what people need to know and because that feels like a, a can of worms just by itself, but let's 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 talk about the the company that you founded. So, Inkle is the the company name. It's just starting at ground level, what exactly does it do, and how does it work? 
Sure. It's a subscription news service that bundles news from 100 plus sources around the world. So we've gone out and done partnership deals with publishers like the Financial Times, Economist, Bloomberg and New York Times. And we're bringing all their news together into one app and one app, one website. And you pay 15 Australian dollars a month, 10 US a month, and you get access to all of this news in one place. And what we're doing on that platform, once we bring all the news in, is um, we have our own algorithms that rank stories not based on, you know, engagement or click-throughs or virality or the sorts of things that you see on social media. But what we're really trying to do is we're trying to rank stories based on news value. And we start doing that by looking at how publishers rank stories and then comparing that across other publishers and saying, you know, if all these newsrooms are telling us something about a similar story, then we know that's a pretty important story. And so we've got a completely unique way of thinking about the news value of stories. And then within that process, we also bring in human beings. We bring in journalists. We have a team of journalists in Australia and the U.S. who go through and vet the stories and, you know, look for corroboration and, you know, secondary sources and things like that. So that ultimately the news we're putting in front of readers has gone through those checks and we're making sure that it is reliable. You've... um... You know, you, we're getting into into business models a, a little bit here now. So yeah. let's just dive into that because I feel like for me, that's what lives at the heart of, of a lot of the, the issues that we're seeing. And and you've said before, you know, the current course that we're on, most of the world's news creators are on a path to unprofitability. Why? Let's start with why, why that is. Sure. Um, so for the last two decades on the internet, most of the news content that's been available has been monetized through ads. But the problem with that model is that most people don't log into news websites. And so the ads that you're shown are essentially based on guesses about what you may or may not be interested in. And if you compare that to the way people like Facebook and Google show you ads, they're obviously doing it with a lot more precision and accuracy because they have so much more data about you. So if you're an advertiser, you're much more likely to buy ads on Facebook and Google than you are with a publisher simply because you're getting better return on your investment because they have that precision in terms of who and you know why they show you ad to a certain person. But even if you get beyond that, I think there are other structural problems with ad-based news. Um, for instance, screen sizes have gotten smaller. Five, 10 years ago, if you were consuming news on your desktop or laptop, you'd see 16 ad units on a page. If you do it on a mobile device, maybe there's two ads on a page. And so there have been a number of similar structural changes in the industry that have really made the free ad-based model for news unsustainable. And, you know, I don't know what the latest numbers are in terms of a minimum audience required for a newsroom, but it would be in the millions you, know, you have to have millions and millions of readers if you want to have a newsroom of, let's say, two, three, five hundred journalists, you know, because that's the scale that you have to have to make enough money through ads. And so what we've finally seen over the last five years is a pivot in the industry where publishers have started to move away from that idea of free ad-based news and towards subscriptions. And I think ultimately it's a really good move because you know an individual news subscriber is likely to generate 150 to $200 in a year for that publisher, uh, whereas ads from that same user, if they weren't paying, would be maybe 2 to $5. So it's a lot more valuable. That's an incredible difference. 
Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, one of the things I sometimes um, talk to people about is that, you know, when we were all reading news in print many years ago, publishers were making on average $200 in print advertising from each reader in a year. When we moved to the desktop, that collapsed by 90%. That dropped to $20 per reader per year on the desktop. And now that we moved to mobile devices, that's collapsed by 90% again. It's down to about $2 per reader per year. And that doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're one of the old so-called legacy publishers or you're one of these new digital-only you know, BuzzFeed-type publishers. It, they all have the same sort of uh, metrics and level of monetization. And if you step back and you think about this and you say, well, there aren't many parallels for this in history where the value of a customer has collapsed by 99% and the business is able to survive it. There's no amount of cost cutting that can deal with that. That was going to be my next my next question. You know, what company or industry can survive a collapse of ninety nine percent of your of your revenue? I mean, if you just look at it in that context alone, what do you have to do? Well, you've got to firstly slash expenses. Um, you know, part of that would be good journalism. Then you've got to you know do whatever you can to get the, every last eyeball you can, and that would have an extreme bias on the type of content that you're putting out there. Um, and, and even that is, I'm imagining, completely unsustainable in the long run. Absolutely. Yeah, like most organizations, when they undertake cost-cutting measures, you know, if they cut 20% of their cost base, that's a good outcome. If they're getting really aggressive, they might cut 30%. And you know, a lot of these publishers have gone through and done this two, three, four, five times over the last 10 years. So you do very quickly get to a point where you say, okay, well, I've you know, cut my cost base by half or two-thirds versus 10 years ago, but I'm still wildly out of the money in terms of where I need to be for revenue. And so ultimately, the only solution is to get that value of the reader and the value of the customer back up. And the way to do that is with subscriptions. So that, I mean, we're really talking about an industry on its knees, silently, yes. <laughs> silently on its knees. Let's let's talk about some of the solutions here, because, you know, although not many of us work in media, nor do we own shares in news companies, however... This directly impacts our lens on the world, um, the health of our economies, the health of our nations, the health of our neighborhoods when it comes to bias um, and misinterpretation. What are some of the possibilities there in terms of change of revenue model? We, you've talked about subscription, and I think we've all had the experience of, you know, you go onto Google, you find a, an article you like, you go to read the article, you get the first paragraph, and then it says, please sign up. Um, I have not found that to be successful for me as a as a user but i'm assuming there are some people doing it well um are there any others are there any, any other possible roadmaps for what this could look like going forwards yeah look i mean uh you could look at music as an analogy or a metaphor right and so there's if you look at music there's a couple of things that we see one was in the early days most of the record labels were trying to get you to buy music from them directly. You know, you could actually, back in the day, you could go to U2's website and buy U2's songs in digital format. But very few people did that, right? And what really changed in music is the arrival of products like Spotify. And so that, to a certain extent, I guess, is what we're trying to help achieve for news, is, you know, assembling enough demand in one place that it unlocks people's willingness to pay, and there's two and a half billion people reading news online. So, you know, we should be able to motivate a very significant number of people to pay. And if you can do that, you can make a very substantial change in the trajectory of the industry. You know, if you look at the impact of Spotify on the music industry, the music industry is growing again. And a lot of that is actually down to Spotify and other streaming services. So I'd say that's one. 
but the other thing that you know a lot of um, bands and you know musical acts do is they go on tour and so they have events and they have loyalty programs and they sell merchandise and so I think there's an option there for some of these news organizations to really particularly with their most loyal readers you know instead of just having a paywall really transforming that experience and saying yes it's a paywall and it gets you through and you can read all the content but you also get access to the journalists and it becomes sort of a membership club or a tribe that you belong to and maybe there are events and there's merchandise and there's a whole bunch of other sort of ancillary products that you can buy into and the value proposition overall sort of becomes much stronger Um, and then the other one is um, you know a lot of them I guess do try and look at e-commerce and you know, the New York Times, I think, is probably one of the most successful in this. They have a service called Wirecutter, where they review and recommend technology products, and you can buy them, and they clip the ticket when you buy one of those products. The challenge with doing that at scale, though, is it's hard to do from a current affairs website, because people don't come to a news website to buy products. And so it's a it's a difficult funnel to build, um, and you can do it, but I don't expect that to be the mainstay. If I were to prognosticate, I'd say you know, in the future, the majority of the revenue for publishers will come from consumers, either through their own direct channels, like the ones we were just talking about, or through channels like Inco. And then beyond that, there will be revenue still, some revenue coming from advertising. Um, some of them will probably have alternate sources, like The Guardian has the Scott Trust, um, you know, or might get bought by wealthy benefactors like The Washington Post and you know, Time Magazine. And so I think we'll probably see a mix of that, but the mainstay for my, uh, in my opinion, will be consumer revenue, be people paying for information. I think it's an interesting parallel looking at the music industry there, because, you know, another thing that branched off with the music industry, just thinking back to the transformation that it's had over the past decade, is independent artists. So, you know, the crowdsourcing. So basically, you know, I'm, crowdsour- I'm crowdsourcing my next album. If you donate this much, I will send you an album this much, a signed album this much. I'll come to your house and, and, and wash your dog. Um, and do you see journalism going a similar way where, I mean, obviously the, the Guardian is, is by donation. I don't know if you would call that crowdsourcing. But where certain journalists set themselves up and go, you know, this is a story that I'm very passionate about writing. If you believe in me and my perspective on the world, fund me to go and investigate this. Yes, and it's happening already. Um, There's a website called Substack that does that, where there have been actually some high-profile journalists coming out of the big newsrooms who've gone and set up their own newsletters. And the way Substack works is it's just a platform for setting up a newsletter very simply. And you can charge the people who get your newsletter. So you can sell your newsletters for $5 a month or $10 a month. And you can focus on just writing the things that you write um, and that you care about. And and that model works quite well for journalists with large followings and large profiles. If you have a million followers on Twitter, it's a very good way to build your own individual brand and a business out of that. Um, Ultimately, I don't know how far that model can extend, though. As with the indie labels, right, I think it'll work for some and some will break out of that and actually probably end up becoming new news brands. And, you know, like in Australia, we've got Michael West, who used to be a journalist at Fairfax, and he's gone and set up his own website. And now he's got other journalists working with him. And so you'll see new brands evolving out of this. But there will be a lot of people that just won't have the scale to make it work, because unless you have that following already, 
I think it's going to be hard to get enough people to sign up to you all. You know, like a lot of indie music uh, labels struggle as well. One of the things that that I would love to see, just thinking more about that, you know, you follow a particular journalist because it's a perspective that you really enjoy. Something, again, that happened for me last year um, with everything that was going on on the planet, you, you know, you, you had Trump, George Floyd, um, COVID, pandemic, economy, you know, I don't need to list all the the intensity that happened last year. But one of the things that I started doing differently in terms of my own media consumption was I started to notice that I was very firmly entrenched in a particular perspective, in a particular point of view, a particular leaning. And so I started consciously seeking out the opposite of that opinion, which I wouldn't recommend for anybody um, <laughs> in terms of comfort levels. However, you know, I would go in and I would read, I read The Guardian, and I would go in and I would read something on The Guardian, and then I would go over to Fox News and see if I could find the exact same coverage from that perspective. And what would be incredible is, is if that were available in both places, if you could read an article on something from a particular perspective and then directly underneath it said, you know, do you want to hear the opposite point of view? Yes. Like somehow using algorithms to rather than embed bias, actually remove as much bias as possible. Do you, do you see that on the horizon or do you, no one's incentivized enough to do it? Uh, no, in fact, we do it. Um, and so I did, things, I, it sounds oh, like I set you up perfectly there. <laughs> yeah, you did actually. Uh, but, um, you know, the, it, it's a, it's an interesting topic, right? Because we actually came up with the exact same idea, um, you know, when we were looking at coverage of an issue and it's not necessarily politics, right? It, it even takes sport as an example. If Australia is playing England in the ashes and you read the English and the Australian coverage of that match, you know, they give you very different perspectives on how the game was played. And so we developed a feature called Dive Deeper, where under every article, we show you that same article from multiple perspectives. And it's one of the things that readers say they like about the platform, because it is exactly doing, you know, what, what you were describing earlier. That said, there is a danger in this as well, which is this idea of false equivalence. Right, that uh, you know, one percent of science scientists deny that climate change is anthropogenic, and so let's spend time talking about why climate change might not be as big a problem as we think it is. And so we are running into this issue where, you know, it's the all lives matter sort of argument being applied to topics where really there is a consensus fact base, and 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 I think this is an area where there's been. I think a little bit of confusion among publishers on what their role is, because you know the role of a publisher is not to shift the consensus view on a scientific fact base. The way science has always worked is, you know, if you have a dissenting opinion, you come up with a replicable experiment and you change the views of all the scientists, and then science moves on and it accepts a new idea. But until that happens, it should not be reported as news. And so I think, you know, just because someone somewhere has come up with a crazy idea and they've said the earth is flat or the moon is made of cheese doesn't mean it should be covered in the news. And so, so long as you stay away from that idea of false equivalence, I do think there's a lot of value in showing people a story from multiple perspectives. It's actually really important. I just want to, I want, I want to talk about you, you in this for a second, because, you know, you obviously saw a need or a problem or, or a huge issue and, and jumped in with both feet. And that that takes a special kind of something, 
because most of us see a problem and, and we're very good at talking about a problem, but actually giving up everything, including our time and our career to go and solve that problem, that's a that's a totally different beast. Was there was there a particular moment or tipping point for you where you thought, I'm I'm just gonna have to do this myself? Yeah, so it was actually I started Inkle when my wife was expecting our second child. Oh, I bet you were popular. Oh, I was. I, I sold it to her as, you know, spending more time at home, um, which, which I sort of did. So, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily present mentally, but I was there physically. Uh, but really, you know, it was sort of, you know, when you have children, it changes your lens. It changes your perspective and the way you think about things. And one of the things I started thinking about is, you know, what kind of world are these kids going to grow up in? And are they going to live in a world where climate change continues to be a problem? And if it does, it's going to be a much, much, much bigger problem in 20 years than it is even today. And, you know, I started thinking, well, when they turn around and they say to me, Dad, what did you do about this problem 20 years ago? You know, because you, you knew this was an issue. Why didn't you guys fix this? I wanted to be able to say to them, well, this is what I did. And point to something tangible and say, you know, this to me seemed the best course of action. And, you know, and for me, that was literally just going back to people's information and making sure people understand what's going on. Because I have a lot of faith in, in human beings as a species. And I think if people just get the right information, they make the right decisions. So often the challenge is that people are acting out of a lack of information. And for me, that was really, you know, it was sort of that idea of sort of thinking about what the world's going to look like in 20 years and what my kids are going to have to deal with and thinking about, well, how do I best impact that and how can I help with that situation? I read a quote from you that it said, um, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur. I found myself uniquely qualified to tackle what I saw as one of the biggest problems in our society. Um, what were, that's a big job, just firstly. What what were some of the key challenges out of the gate? Because you're talking about disrupting not only one is one of the largest industries that we have, but also probably the most influential industry that we have with some very big players at the top there. Yes, um, it's yes, absolutely. And, you know, I try not to think about that too much because otherwise it just gets very daunting. Um, it's much easier to just think about the things you have to deal with and solve. Um, but. You're exactly right about that, because I think, you know, ultimately news builds the consensus on which the entire world operates. And what we've seen over the last few years is how problematic it gets if that consensus breaks down. If we're debating, you know, the facts, we, we can't actually agree on what to do about them and we can't make any progress. So it's a huge problem that has to be solved. But it's a problem that sits at the nexus of, I guess, three disciplines. You have to understand the news industry very deeply because ultimately the solution has to work for the people creating the news, which are the publishers. You have to understand um, news as a consumer very deeply. So you have to be really passionate as a news consumer. Um, and ultimately, you have to understand the technology because this is a technology solution. And for me, I guess it was that combination. You know, I've been a lifelong news tragic. I used to write articles for the local newspaper growing up in India and was the editor of my school paper and, you know, in college and edited the Wharton Journal while doing my MBA. And so I've always been interested in news and I had this unique sort of combination of skills and knowledge around the industry and knowing how to code that sort of said, well, I'm probably one of 
you know, the few people around the world who actually could take this on. And I had, at Fairfax, I had the experience of setting up and running paywalls. So I knew exactly who was and wasn't paying for news and why more people weren't paying for news. And so, so it almost felt like one of those things where, you know, you get tapped on the shoulder and once in a while it's, you know, you're tapping yourself on the shoulder and saying, well, you don't really have a good reason not to do this. And if not, if not you, then who? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, well, it's not going to come from, you know, one of the big tech platforms because they have a different business and it's unlikely to be something that they're going to solve. So it's going to have to be somebody new. And, you know, if not me, then somebody like me, but there probably aren't that many people with that specific set of experiences. What was your, what was your moment when you thought, I, I think this can work? Like, oh, oh my, oh my God, I reckon that, I, that this has legs. So the first point was when we got a very early product in the hands of 100 users in Sydney and Melbourne, mainly friends and family. And at the time, I'd only got the New York Times, the Washington Post, Fairfax and News. And, you know, it was very clumsy and sort of, you know, very manual. But I was looking at the data and seeing what, you know, whether people were reading it. And since we'd handed out friends and family, we knew in the first few weeks we were going to get a false signal. It would be much more about them wanting to support us. And so we ran a long-term test over six months. And we started looking at the data coming out in month four and month five and month six, which would we felt would be a much more accurate view of whether this actually stuck with users. And one of the things we noticed is that people were coming back and they were continuing to engage with this content. And that, you know, for the first time made me realize there's actually something really useful and valuable and powerful here in bringing together credible information in a way that's easy for people to understand. So I'd say that that's probably the first one. And then the second one was when we got our very first investment, which was, um, you know, I got connected to the former editor of the Wall Street Journal in the Washington Post in the US. And he'd written a very smart guy named Marcus Broccoli, who lives in DC. And he'd written a white paper on a similar idea seven years before I started Inco. And so, and he was just starting a venture fund at the time. And so he gave us our first check and, you know, the combination of that data and an investor coming to us and saying, yes, okay, this makes sense. I think for me ultimately was, you know, why I decided to do it, but that was only the first gate, right? I guess my agreement with my wife has been at every stage, there has to be a hurdle. There is a new challenge and there's a hurdle. And if we get over that, then we keep going. If we don't, then, you know, it, it's not meant to be. I remember, I mean, my involvement in and out of, of journalism has been patchy, patchy over the years. But my very first, my very first involvement was at college. And I was asked for the kind of the student paper to go and interview a teacher who had just started at, at the college. And I went and I sat down. And I did what I thought was a very fair interview and wrote what I thought was a very fair article, basically saying that I didn't think that she seemed qualified for the, for the role that she had been put in, <laughs> not realising that the student paper was really just an extension of a letter from the principal of the school and, and it was very quickly thrown in the bin, that article. Which the reason I tell that story is, you know, this new revolution of media that we're talking about here, this new revolution of news that's going to strengthen rather than destroy an industry that we rely on, it basically relies on two core questions. Um, one of those questions is, do we really want bias-free reporting? Do we really want that? Or are we way too comfortable with news that agrees with us, with our perspectives? Are we ready for it? 
It's a really interesting question because I think it doesn't have a single answer. I think the answer, even for a single individual, you know, I think for each of us, our tolerance for opposing ideas varies by topic. You know, it depends on how strongly you hold a particular belief. You know, the stronger your belief, the less likely you are to be open to an opposing point of view. Um, and so for me, ultimately, it's about making sure that people have informed beliefs. It's fine to believe something very strongly, so long as it is a well-informed belief. And that ultimately is, you know, I think the role of news publishers. You're never going to stop people from believing things strongly. And once they do believe something strongly, you're going to find it very hard to convince them otherwise. So what you've got to do is get them early on that journey and make sure that on their path to conviction, they get enough information that, you know, they're forming the right conviction. On the path to conviction. I love that just as a just as a phrase. The the second part of that, you know, where we look at the early part of that pathway to conviction is do we do we understand well enough right now that good news needs to be paid for? And when I say good news, I don't mean positive news. I mean well and well researched, um, well cared for news. Do we understand yet that, that that requires funding, that requires resources, that requires time, and clickbait does not. And so, you know, the more we feed the click the clickbait, the less we're going to get of this type of news that can make a positive impact. I think we do. I think I think most people around the world understand that, and I think that's one of the big changes that's happened in people's understanding of online news over the last ten years. I think some of these problems existed 10 years ago, but readers didn't necessarily understand that. I think the big thing that has to change now is the urgency. While most people intellectually understand the reason why paywalls are going up and the need to support good news, it's not an immediate urgent problem for most people. It's somewhere in line behind climate change and washing the dog and you know a whole lot of other things that we're all very busy doing. And so one of the things we're constantly thinking about at Inkle is saying, well, what can I do for you today as a reader that, you know, is compelling enough for you to want to solve this problem today? It can't just be about, you know, the benefit of society and the long-term 20-year future and, you know, what's the world going to look like? It's got to be a daily benefit. And so, you know, we talk about things like, in fact, the other definition of good news being positive stories that's something we actually brought in because we found that that was something that is a near-term concern for people. You know, the, the news being negative has a very negative mental health impact on a lot of people and particularly over the past year. And so in the middle of the pandemic, we did something quite crazy. We introduced a good news feed and we started digging through and it wasn't always easy, but, you know, we've got journalists going through and digging through for positive news stories and we put it right at the top of the news feed. And we said, before you read anything else, here are three positive stories you need to read. And that is an immediate need because it's changing the way you feel today. It's not about changing the world or saving the world or saving publishers in 20 years. It's actually thinking about immediate impact. And I think you know that's probably how at least we interpret it. Um, because I think people understand the need to save the news and fund the news. But you've always got to think about immediacy and urgency. There's, there's a, a collective of, of guys who I think you would love actually called Future Crunch who I've interviewed for this podcast before and they talk about it in the context of a diet. 
So, you know, we understand that you need to eat good food, healthy food that gets your body in an energized frame frame of mind, for want of a better word. And then you can have some junk here and there, you know, you... You can have your ice cream, you can have your donut, but if you look at news through through that frame, then you know reading something that is positive, it's not Pollyanna. It's put it's taking your entire nervous system off high alert so that you can then hopefully come at the rest of the world from a centered collected place where you're not just running on fear and adrenaline. And then dive in. Then, you know, have a bit of Kim Kardashian, have a bit of, you know, I don't know, dancing cats or but take care of your consumption as you would take care. Take care of your mind as you would take care of your body. Take care of your viewpoint on the planet as you would take care of your body's ability to be able to handle it. And that's exactly that. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I should definitely. Absolutely. You know, because if you ask people about um, whether they think the world's getting better or getting worse, I always find that a really interesting question. You know, like, do you think things are getting better or do you think things are getting worse? And objectively, if you just look at the numbers, things are unquestionably getting better. But quite often it feels like they're getting worse. And it's because of that problem that you talked about, which is, you know, we're always on alert and we're looking for bad news and we're preparing for bad news and we're thinking about bad news. And there's a lot that's happening that's actually positive. We just, we don't necessarily see it. You know, you're, you're a father. We've, we've mentioned that. Do you feel... You, you said that your children were, were kind of the catalyst or becoming a father was a catalyst for, for going down this road. Do you feel positive at the moment? Do you, I mean, you have an inside view on all of this. Do you feel like this is going in the right direction or it stands a, a good chance of going in the right direction? I am positive about certain things. I mean, when, when it comes to Inkle, it's a roller coaster ride, like any startup. There are days when everything goes well and there are days where everything goes poorly and, you know, and everything is um, an existential crisis. So, you know, there are good days and bad days as far as Inkle is concerned. But when I look at the world overall, yeah, I think we're going, you know, to a better place and things are getting better. I do think there are going to be problems along the way. I worry a lot about whether my children will have jobs because I think there will be a massive dislocation in the supply of jobs available to future generations. And I don't know necessarily what kind of skills for them, you know, they should think about. I mean, clearly learning to interact with people is something that's always going to be valuable. But should they learn how to program computers if now we're looking at AI writing computer code? You know, should they know how to drive a car if we're now looking at self-driving cars? And so, you know, I have I have a lot of questions and concerns about certain aspects of the future whether we're looking at um, whether, you know, we can solve some of the problems around climate change quickly enough um, and whether we're going to have jobs in the future and, you know, so specific things like that. But on a macro level, I'd say absolutely. I mean, the future is going to be better than the present and the present's better than the past. And as someone who has their finger on the pulse of, of all news right now, that's <laughs> that's an encouraging that's an encouraging point of view and one that I share, by the way. Um I just I wanted to before before we go into kind of my final question, just for anybody out there who's looking to become more conscious in their own consumption, who's looking to create a diet for themselves of news that is both healthy and helpful and well balanced. 
do you have any simple recommendations? Because obviously we can all, I mean, I tried it, you know, you, you read something, you go and f- try and find the opposite of that thing. It's hard work. It takes time. And by and large, it's quite frustrating. What can we do that is simple things that that can set this kind of back onto the right trajectory? Find an intermediary who will do the work for you. The problem is complex enough that there are, at this point, two ways you can solve this as a news consumer. You either do the work yourself and you set up, you know, your own Twitter lists or you hold a bunch of newsletters or install a number of apps and you can try and solve that and hop across different sites and different apps and create that diet for yourself or you can find someone to do it for you, right? And I'm not necessarily saying Inkle has to be the one to do it. There's a, there's a really entertaining guy in the States called David Pell and he writes a newsletter called Next Draft. And, you know, I like it just for the style and the copy, but he calls himself the managing editor of the internet. And in his newsletter every day, he picks up 10 stories that he thinks you should pay attention to. Now, he may not get it right every time, but if you've got David Pell and you've got Bill Bishop in China and you've got a few other people doing this kind of work for you, ultimately that I think is a much easier path to the answer because most of us don't have time to sit through all the information. So find products or find people who will do that work for you. And, you know, just try them out for a week or two, see if they're actually delivering what you want them to deliver. And, you know, and wherever you still got holes, maybe you add another one and you say, I need somebody who's covering media or I need somebody who's covering tech. And I'd say for most people, that's probably the answer. There was, there are actually, there were some great aggregators out there, you know, Inkle, obviously for, for media, there's some great trends aggregators that I use, like Trend Hunter where once a week there's a list of new trends that they're paying attention to and I can very quickly scan them and pull out ones that are relevant to, to me or, or my clients. So, yes, very much. I think aggregators have been a massive help to me because, yeah, putting my own time into it was not was not working out. Um, one piece of advice you, you've taken on, and we've highlighted it in different ways, you've taken on a very big job here, disrupting an entire industry. And, you know, there'd be a lot of people sat out there right now, um, human beings who are looking at something and thinking that it's broken and either thinking, I, I can't do anything about that or, you know what, I'm, I'm going to jump in with both feet and give this a go. What's the one piece of advice you would give somebody who's seen something broken and wants to jump in and try and change it? For me, the most important thing is that living in the time I'm living in, there is no bigger problem. There is no better use of my time than solving this problem. Because until this problem is solved, no other problem is going to get solved. Whether we're talking about gender equality or international conflict or climate change or water scarcity or people's health or, you know, none of that gets solved unless people know what the facts are. And so I have convinced myself that the problem I'm working on is the best use of my time and of my life. And I think that's hugely important because it's a very tough journey. There are a million different points along that journey where you second guess yourself and things don't go well. And frankly, everybody else second guesses you as well. And, you know, people you turn to for advice and your friends and your mentors and your family and, you know, everybody around you. And so unless you have absolute conviction that this is the seminal problem, you're not going to make it through on the other side because there'll always be, you know, enough reasons to stop that eventually you will. 
And and the only reason I I won't now keep going is because you know for me this is the biggest problem to solve. Nothing else I can do is going to have the sort of impact that this work is. Mm, I love that you just reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from a, a poet called Clint Smith, and he said, "There's no time to pick your battles when your battles have already picked you." And I think for most of us, you know, we know at a degree when a battle has picked us. And we get to say yes or we get to say no. But at a gut level, we usually know. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your your time and your work and your insights. Um, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it too. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.